Well, I don't know if you've been following it. I don't know what to call it, whether to call it the drama or the comedy of the U.S. presidential election. But right now we know just in a few weeks uh, people will be going to vote for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. And as uh, we've been following this, perhaps if you've been following it, uh, you'll recognize... Uh, a, sorry, Philip, am I a little loud? Yeah, I'm, I'm getting nods. I'm loud even for myself. Um, and so there's an infamous quote that's come out. It's rigged, right, if you've been following And so, yes, Donald Trump has been planting a million seeds of conspiracy and just like a million little mosquitoes buzzing in everybody's ears, the little thought, the whole election is rigged. And the media has labeled Trump a whiner. And how Trump is retorted is to say, you made me like this. He blames the media, Clinton, all his adversaries. You made me like this. So as we get started today, I want to just give a very short object lesson. And, and I would like to teach Donald Trump about the lesson of Mr. Blue Lego versus Mrs. Red Lego. And imagine these represent people, and they start just battling it out, just fighting. And I'm not going to do it today, but as we fight each other, it gets messy. What's inside of us comes out and spills over. And Mr. Blue Lego will say to Miss this red Lego, you made me like this. But the reality is, no, everything that you are was already in you. And it was just the conflict, the fight, that caused these things to be exposed and spill over. Now, you and I, we're not running for president, but similar to Trump, we all have our own personal stories of life being thrown at us. We get tossed around by life. And we too need to realize that for the most, we are not to blame others and whine life or so-and-so. You made me like this. As we come to 1 Samuel 19 then, in today's episode of David's life, David is, again, a presence in Saul's life. And David... Not intentionally, but just his presence in Saul's life, he becomes a challenge to Saul once again. And David's presence in Saul's life, it airs out the very dark places of Saul's heart. And that's basically what's going on in the biblical history today. But as we look between the lines and pages of Israel's history, we always need to look for a deeper gospel story. And so what do we see today? Here, the, the burden of today's passage is this, that the gospel challenges us. The gospel challenges us. Just as David's presence in Saul's life, his successes, his being king-elect, challenged Saul and caused things within his own dark heart to air out and to spill over, so too the gospel challenges us. David here, he's a foreshadow of Jesus. We know that. The central figure of the gospel. So we can say, for all intents and purposes, that Saul is being challenged here by a foreshadow of the gospel. And we could even argue the gospel itself. 
And so what the gospel does is it challenges us not just to go through life and being like a pinball machine, a pinball in a pinball machine, just being bounced around to and fro, but to grow through life intentionally. And I want us to notice three types of challenges uh, posed against uh, Saul today, or back then, yesterday, in the past, and us today. The gospel, it challenges our deepest passions. The gospel, we'll see that it challenges our, our narrative, the story of our life. And the gospel challenges our pride. And so let's jump right to it. First, the gospel challenges our deepest passions. And so what do I mean by a passion? A passion is when you have a conviction and then there are strong emotions coupled with that conviction. And so let me give uh, just a, an example from yesterday. My children, we had dinner at uh, McDonald's and they were in the play place. And then my son came out from the play place for his Oreo McFlurry dessert. And Emma, my daughter, was nowhere to be found. And so I was a little worried. So I asked him to go and find his sister, to check on her in the play place, to which he retorted passionately, but my ice cream will melt, <laughs> right? And so here is an example of his emotions for a, a disdain for waste and being sorely inconvenienced, but he also had a conviction <laughs> that his enjoyment of his ice cream in a solid state <laughs> surpassed the safety and existence of his younger sister. So are you beginning to see just a passion? You could describe it. You can define it as when you have a conviction, but it's coupled with intense emotions. And we all have these passions. Where do we see passion in Scripture today? In verse 1, And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. That's passion. When you want to kill someone, I mean, it's a very terrible passion. But your emotions and conviction have gone to a place of darkness and intensity that it expresses itself in this very terrible way. But we also see a positive uh, passion in Jonathan. Saul's passion was emotions of contempt Envy of David, his insecurity, his vitriol and bitterness, these things had seeds to such a point that he made no attempt to hide his passion to literally want to snuff out, to murder David. But Saul, it wasn't just emotions, he had a conviction that he and he alone and his bloodline should be the king of Israel. Now in Jonathan, we see a positive passion. And the author contrasts this right off the bat. Saul wanted to kill, but Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And the original word here for delight, it basically means that Jonathan could not be more happier for David. Jonathan could not be more delighted celebrating David's calling as king. There was no ego involved here. It was a pure happiness for someone else's successes. Now, the first point here is that the gospel challenges our passions. And so we see passion in verse 1, but where do we see the gospel challenging our passions? Let me follow up that question with another question. Who or what is 
eliciting Saul's emotions and convictions. And Jonathan's different response, his, his positive passion. Simple answer, David. It's David's presence in both these men's lives that is drawing out their passions for better and worse. Remember, David is, is the gospel. He f- symbolizes, he foreshadows Jesus. Jesus is the better, the greater David. And so for all intents and purposes, we can say here that the gospel is challenging Saul and David here. It's the gospel that's drawing out what's really in their hearts. So what's the practical implication here? Again, let me follow up that question with another question. Why do some people love the gospel when they hear it and others reject it so quickly? Because the gospel, it's like a searchlight ripping through the ebony night and exposing, revealing our emotions, our convictions, our passions that truly dwell in our heart. The gospel confronts us. It challenges us. I vividly recall a candid moment with a really good friend of mine about five years ago, and he entered a season away from the gospel, away from the church, away from faith, And he left vocalizing every doubt, every argument, from archaeological doubts to cosmological arguments to the whole gamut of just arguments against Christianity. But a few years later, he did return. And one day when we had a heart-to-heart, in a moment of honesty, he confessed that all his grievances, all his doubts were just a smokescreen for his real motive. And he shared honestly with me that he just wanted to sleep with his girlfriend and he wanted to just ease his conscience of a sexual ethic that did not line up with the gospel's ethic. And so the gospel, it it has that power. It reveals what's really going on in our hearts. To put it another way, The gospel reveals two all-important aspects of our being. And we see it doing this in the lives of Saul and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 19. And the gospel still works in our lives this way. First, the gospel puts a spotlight on our depravity. This is what Christians refer to as our total depravity. And this doctrine of total depravity, it believes that sin has left us spiritually tainted through and through and separated from God. A complete moral and spiritual inability to be perfect before God. And this led to losing communion with God through His Spirit. When God first created us, He breathed His Spirit into us. But sin came into the world and it broke that communion with the Spirit. And that's why... I know Colin mentioned this in his sermon last week too, that the Spirit is such an important person in the way the Gospel works itself out in the lives of people who would believe or reject. And so like Saul, because of our depravity, we can find ourselves going to very dark places. But the Gospel also puts a bright spotlight on something else on our original image. 
that we were created originally in the image of God. The gospel brings us back to this beautiful truth, the great doctrine of the image of God in us, the Imago Deo, that God created you and me to be special, to be the apple of His eye because He created us to reflect Him in His righteousness, in His rational ability, in His moral ability, and originally with spiritual immortality. And so we were affectionately loved by God, different from everything else in creation, because of this beautiful doctrine that we are created in the image of God. If you ever struggle with your self-worth, your self-esteem. Just dwell on this beautiful doctrine that you were created in the image of God. And so we, like Jonathan, looking to David as everything he hopes to be, so you and I, we can look to Jesus and see in Jesus everything, everything that we ever hoped to be. All our dreams finding its culmination, its fulfillment, its conclusion in Jesus, who is the image of God. And when we trust Him, He places His image on us, His righteousness. Moving on then, the Gospel challenges us in our narratives. And by narrative, we mean our stories. The other day, just driving, I enjoyed an interview on CBC Radio 1 of a young female student at York University. I didn't catch her name. But uh, she was sharing her journey with cerebral palsy. And she shared when she was an elementary student, a child, that she felt marginalized at school because she was obviously different. But she shares in her story that there came a pivotal day when she was empowered because of her mother's words. Her mother looked straight into her eyes and and wanted to deal with her feeling left out and just the hurts that came along with that. Her mother said these pivotal words. Just explain to them what cerebral palsy is. And this young lady articulates in the interview that at that moment, she felt for the first time a power to write her own narrative. That her story didn't have to be determined by what the other kids thought. What God does for us then, He gives us this beautiful power to choose our narrative. In in the scheme of just how He's created this universe, He's given us a, a free will to choose our narrative. Now where do I see this in Scripture today? As we look at verse 5, the narrative continues, For he took his life in his hand. Jonathan is describing David, what he did for Israel and Saul. And he struck down the Philistine, Goliath. And how does Jonathan frame this narrative? The Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. Jonathan is telling the gospel here. You saw it and rejoiced. He's speaking to Saul, the murderer Saul. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Even this challenge to his father, Jonathan was immersed in the narrative of the law. And in the law were clear laws not to take innocent blood, not to murder. 
And so Jonathan chose the narrative of Scripture, the narrative of the Gospel. And he's asking his father, he's challenging his father, you have a choice, you saw it, so how will you choose to see David? As God's great salvation or as a challenge to your petty ego? That's what Jonathan is doing here. He's convincing his father that he should remember the victory that David brought to him in Israel. Jonathan is persuading Saul to see his life through the narrative of David's victory. In in, in other words, challenging his dad to stop sulking. You're supposed to be my father, a king. Quash your envy. Be rid of your ego. And by remembering what? By choosing the narrative of the gospel, that the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. Jonathan is is preaching the gospel to Saul here. As the author continues in verse 6, and Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And so for a brief moment here, Saul is on the right track. He listens to Jonathan's gospel voice. And so now remember, The gospel, it tells us that we're made in the image of God. And to repeat myself, a great gift then that God has given every one of us, being made in His image, is to have the power to choose your narrative. To choose how you look at life, how you look at your own story. 1 Samuel 19 continues in verse 8, And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow. And so they fled before him. And the author's point here is that David went from strength to strength. He continued to amass victories. He continued to gain favor amongst the people. And so as David's victory is growing, Saul, the choice for him is to continue to relish in those victories. To realize that David's victories really lift him up and the nation of Israel and the people of God. But sadly, Saul, he reverts to his old narrative, his destructive narrative. David had, Saul had the opportunity to relish in, in David's victories more deeply, but instead, now he reverts to his old way of looking at life, and his ego begins to seethe and, and become insecure again. Similarly, for you and me, when, with every test that life brings us, we have an opportunity to shed old narratives. Every time you feel banged up by circumstance, you have an opportunity to identify and reject old narratives and to take up the gospel narrative, your identity in Christ. And so we see in verse 9 that a harmful spirit from the Lord comes upon Saul and he sat in his house with a spear in his hand and we know how it plays out. He attempts to murder David. He throws a spear at him, and the text seems to show uh, that he, he did it twice. David eluded him twice. And so Saul continues to hunt down David. David escapes, or we could say that Saul is trying to destroy the gospel in his life. He's trying to debunk it. He's trying to convince himself any, every which way, this is not for me. And so Saul, we see in the story that he sends a lynch mob to kill David in the morning. But notice now what happens. Saul is fooled in his attempt to to destroy David, to destroy the gospel narrative in his life. Saul is fooled 
by a household idol. Archaeologists say that these household idols range from something small, like a, maybe a foot tall, to something large. And they're usually, they represented uh, ancestral worship, but they, they could have represented anything, I guess, that the, the household wanted to worship. And Michal here, the daughter of Saul, in love with David, protects him and sets up this idol, this household idol. Just to read, Michal took an image and laid it on the bed, or this household idol, that's what image means, and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed and with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. So here is a powerful metaphor. As Saul is just fooled by this household idol, here's a powerful metaphor for our lives. If we seek to debunk and destroy the gospel in our own lives, in the end, all the petty little passions and priorities that we thought were all of life to us, the things that we so just unnecessarily and and wastefully give our affections and energies and life to, these idols in our lives, these little petty passions and priorities that we thought were all of life will have the last laugh. And they will mock us in eternity, just as this household idol was mocking Saul. Now, I, I love listening to people's stories because the way people interpret the events of their lives, it reveals just uh, how they think about everything. It reveals everything about them. And so they wait, the way they frame their sufferings, their successes, it exposes the narrative that they've chosen. And so for that reason, I just love getting to know people that way and listening to stories. So let me ask you just a practical question today for you, reflective question. What is your narrative today? What way do you choose to look on your life? You'll have to do that hard work to reflect, but just to reflect, I mean, some of us just, our narrative is our past. Our narrative might be our job and, and, and trying to climb the ladder. Our narrative might be our children. Our narrative might be that, that one person that we want in our life, and, and we just completely define our lives by that narrative. But whatever it is, What is your narrative today? The gospel, it challenges your narrative. The gospel invites you and me to see our stories through the story of God so loving us that He gave up His one and only Son, Jesus. This Jesus on the cross and so loving us that Jesus not only took our place for our sins on the cross, but the Father and the Spirit and their power raised Jesus from the dead to completely, once and for all, defeat 